0: Yeah, good. While you're getting down, uh, or while you're getting seated and getting settled, if you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, but you have a smartphone and you have our app, there's a Bible on our app for you or any other Bible you have on your phone maybe. Um, there's also some Bibles in your seats, so uh, anywhere you can find one, find one. And we are in Luke chapter 10, going to be starting around verse 25, as we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke uh, for a long time here, and I'm going to be pressing on into what is, um, I would say, arguably... One of the most—I don't know—we'll say popular uh, portions of scripture that you could that that exists. I mean, you don't have to be a theologian, you don't have to be a pastor, you don't even really ever have to have come to church to have heard the phrase, because it's kind of become this pop culture phrase that, like, if you stop someone or if you stop on the side of the road to help someone change a tire or someone's car goes into the ditch on a snowy day and you push them out, you might be referred to as a good Samaritan. Okay, so everyone knows the story, right? Or everyone at least knows the connotation of what it means to be a good Samaritan. So today we're going to read where it actually happened in Scripture and talk about it and unpack it. Because although it certainly is true... That a good Samaritan is someone who helps someone in a time of need. There's so much more depth to the parable that Jesus shares. And there's actually a story within a story. And so I want to talk about both of those this morning because they're really important. So uh, let's take a minute and read the parable uh, to remind us of the story. Luke chapter 10 starting at verse 25. I'm reading out of the NIV, so it might be slightly different than your version. <clears throat> On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How, how do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God, With all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And, love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and he saw the man. He passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, Well, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Pray with me for a minute, would you? Lord, uh, so much can be missed, so much can be hidden, Lord, when our hearts are distracted when our eyes fail to see when our ears are plugged and so lord i pray that you would open our eyes that you would clear our minds that the that the white noise of our lives lord may be silenced in this moment that our ears would be unplugged lord that we might hear and receive Uh, the Spirit's voice communicating the truth of Your Word to us. Lord, may Your Word be uh, life-changing, not just good advice, not just inspiring or encouraging or challenging. Lord, may it change who we are that it might glorify You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen now um, in an effort to in an effort to try and kind of unpack some of the lessons that we see here, um, like I said, there is a story here, but there's also a story kind of within the story of what's happening. so you have this conversation um, with Jesus, this guy uh, Jesus was teaching and he had become a man who was teaching with authority and was teaching with power and religious leaders were kind of, it was becoming uh, a habit. Jesus kind of had hecklers. We'll put it like that. you know, People that would come into the crowd and like a comedian has hecklers or a sports figure has hecklers. Jesus had hecklers. And some of Jesus' hecklers were the religious leaders because the teaching of Jesus was so, um, seemed at least, so radical that there was opportunity to challenge him. And this is one of those instances where Jesus was challenged by a teacher uh, or a lawyer of the law, of the religious law in Judaism. And so... uh, This was one such occasion where, uh, it says, an expert in the law stood up and said, um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Seems like a, uh, a pretty important question. I mean, not one that, given the opportunity, I think any pastor would, you know, like, given the opportunity, if someone were to ask me what must I do to inherit eternal life, man, like, it's go time, right? Like, that's the question we, we live for, right? So, but it's so funny the way that Jesus responds because he just, you know, like a good tennis player, just knocks the ball back on the other side into this guy's court, and he says, well, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? You tell me, right? You're the expert. You're the teacher. It seems like you're fishing for something. So why don't you tell me? How do you read it? Oh, and and the guy, you know, kind of like, well, (laughs) uh, here we go. Um, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So the guy basically responded, love God with all that you are, with all that you have, with all that you could possibly be, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you got it. You have answered correctly. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, It becomes even more apparent that the original question that the teacher of the law asking, was asking Jesus was not just about getting information as much as it was of like trying to poke the bear. Okay? And so even Luke records this when he says in verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Okay, so we're going to have four main points this morning, all right? And I'm not usually like four points in a poem type of preacher, but it seems like like this, uh, this is just the way that it came to me as I was preparing, so this is, we're going to fly with it, okay? Uh, so if you're into writing things down, these are the things you need to write down. Point number one, what we see in the life of the teacher of the law here is this. And what we need to, in fact, um, if there is, if there is um, the most sanctifying thing that God did in me this week, preparing and praying and pouring over this, was this point right here. Number one. Point number one. This is where Jesus needs to change me this week. Is that there is a big, big, big difference between knowing something and doing something. All right? In fact, what do they say? That the, that the longest distance that any piece of truth travels is the 18 inches between your head and your heart. Because it's really, really easy to know something. It's an entirely different thing that that thing that you know becomes a part of who you are and informs the character and trajectory of your faith. I'll tell you what. um, I've spent the better part of my... I'm, I'm at the point in my life now where I've studied the Scripture professionally longer than I haven't. And I have poured over every page of this book And I have pieces of paper on walls, behind frames, that say that I've made accomplishments when it comes to knowing what's here. All right? But there is a huge difference between what you know and what you do in the kingdom. Huge. And the teacher of the law. right, was the guy who knew all the right answers, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus? You tell me. And so then he rattles off the answer, and Jesus is like, perfect. You got it. Like, what more do you want? There is, there is, there is nothing that, that's it. You got it. But, but listen, but the whole section here that we read is kind of like bookended by, by, two, by two things that are kind of held in tension here. The first is that it starts with the question that the teacher asks and his perfect answer to Jesus. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? He knows it all, right? But then Jesus' response to the teacher His main exhortation, the whole big point of the parable, has nothing to do with, okay, uh, teacher of the law, go and keep on believing what you're believing. Thumbs up. You've done it right. You have succeeded. In fact, it's the complete opposite of that. The very last thing that Jesus says to the teacher is what? Don't keep on believing right Jesus told him verse 37 the expert in the law replied the one who had mercy on him and Jesus told him what go and do likewise that that there was that there's a necessity for uh, our knowledge to inform our action in order for our knowledge to be legitimate now, this is not, like, a single point in Scripture, right, that we're, that we're getting this from. This really is the whole counsel of Scripture, right? I mean, you could go to the book of 1 John, right, and say anyone that does, that says they love the Lord but hates his brother is a liar, right? Well, I love the Lord, I, I, but, but, but I'm, I hate over here, like, there's an inconsistency, right, right? Um, there's an inconsistency here between those of us who know everything, right, but who hoard that knowledge as if it's the knowledge that produces righteousness and growth in the kingdom rather than us doing what it is that our faith is producing in us, fruit. Now, the Apostle Paul, in perhaps we talked about how familiar the Good Samaritan is, right? Well, I mean, I would venture to say that Probably equally as, um, we'll say, famous as the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is. If you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard about what the Bible has to say about love, right? In First Corinthians thirteen, and um, we're not gonna, I'm gonna try really hard not to get a soapbox about whether or not the love described in 1 Corinthians 13 is the love, romantic love, between husband and wife. However, (laughs) can you tell it's an issue for me? Uh, However, it certainly does speak to the same dichotomy of knowing and doing. Alright? So if you go to 1 Corinthians 13, I'm just going to read the first couple verses for you. Um, Paul, Paul sets out perfectly the same tension that Jesus is dealing with with this teacher who knows everything but is failing to do anything about it. When he says, uh, the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 13, Isn't this fun? I'm having fun? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, then I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor, surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Why? Why? Well then he goes on to describe what love is, right? Love is patient, right? Love is kind. Love is not boastful, it's not proud. Love is not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered. it keeps no records of wrong, right? Like these are these are attitudes that are developed in action, right? I'm not a rude person, right? I'm not impatient. I am not boastful, I am not prideful. I keep no record of wrong. It is it is the action steps of the knowledge that the Lord has given to us that we've translated from our head to our heart and that is producing the fruit of righteousness in our lives. That's what Paul describes when he describes love, right? But what he prefaces that section with is that you can speak in the tongues of men and of angels and you can have all of the spiritual gifts that you want. You can, you can speak uh, in prophecy and you can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. You can give all that you have to the poor. You can surrender your very body to death. But if you are not loving... Right? If you have not developed the fruit of love that shows itself in kindness and patience and not being envious or rude or proud or boastful, then you are and have nothing. That it makes not a bit of difference. And I think that the sentiment of the whole story here in Luke chapter 10 is that Jesus is pointing out the radical radical inconsistency in the life of a man who knows the right answers but who fails to see how that answer works itself out in his faith daily and so the question is for us what is it that we know but that we're failing to do what what head knowledge are we leading up against calling it faith when it is actionless at producing righteousness in our lives? That's the question. That's the question of the parable. Or that's the point of the parable, I should say. Um, <clears throat> so, number one. Knowing, doing, not the same thing, right? In relationship with each other, Absolutely, right? Not the same. Um, okay, here we go. Next point. This We're going to unpack this a little bit, um, but here's the, like the, the main thing, is that love, the type of love that's described in the parable, the type of mercy that's described in the parable, compassion, the grace of the Samaritan, right? It cannot, love cannot be limited by the object. Love is only controlled by the subject. Now, I'm going to unpack that and try to explain it, all right? Because there are a couple things that are, there's a couple layers of things that are happening here. That I want to be able to um, help us see. All right? It's easy to miss the point of the parable. It's, it's easy for us to mistake the question that the parable seeks to answer. All right? Sometimes we think that the parable answers the question, how do I get eternal life? Well, you'd be like the Samaritan, right? You love those who are in need. But that's not actually the, that's not actually the, the question that Jesus answers with the parable, is it? Because the, God, the teacher asks the question, how do I get eternal life? And then Jesus says, well, I don't know, you tell me. And then the guy answers. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? And then in an attempt to justify himself, the teacher asks another question. Well, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, who is my neighbor? And that's when the parable starts, right? That's when Jesus begins the story within the story. And so, what the parable of the Good Samaritan seeks to answer is not, how do I get eternal life? But, who is my neighbor? Who is the person that I am to love? Now, we, in our culture, our neighbor is the person that Lives next door, right? Um, they did have those kind of neighbors, right? in In biblical times, but that's not what that's not the word in Greek that's used here, right? The word in Greek that's used here is me- is meant to describe um, someone that you're living in community or or a close proximal fellowship to. All right, so so the question then is. Not, how do I get eternal life, that the parable is answering. The question is, that the parable um, seeks to answer, is, who is my neighbor? Or, who exactly is deserving of the love that's described in the answer to the first question? Who is that person? Who is worthy or deserving of love? Now, we can make all kinds of connections about how even that very question connects back to our first point, right? The difference between knowing and doing. Because I bet you I can pull any one of you up out of that pew right now and bring you up here and make you part of the sermon. And, and ask you, who is it that we, that it's deserving of love? Who, who is it that we are to love? Guaranteed, 100% correct answers across the board. Right? But is there a categorical difference between what you will know and what you will do? Uh, there typically is in my life. Okay? So... Um, taking the parable a little bit further. Uh, We read it already, but the gist of the parable is that that, uh, two religious people came by the man that day and did not help him, but a Samaritan came by the man that day and did help him. Now, we're quite hard on religious leaders both in biblical times and today. Um, So, let's just examine the situation here. Okay, so they're on a road. And um, this guy apparently had been robbed, he'd been beaten, he'd been stripped naked, and he'd been left half dead. Well, maybe the priest and maybe the Levite that were walking that road that day just didn't see him. He was in the ditch, he was covered up with weeds, they were in a hurry, It just a matter of circumstance, it, they just passed by, right? Now, Jesus does not allow for any wiggle room in the parable here, okay? Uh, because Jesus describes the location that this happened as the road from Jerusalem, which is north, to Jericho which is south. Jericho was a, a very wealthy city. all right. It was a, um, uh, not a port city, but a by-the-water city. What do you call those? Yeah, coastal city. Thank you. Uh, coastal city, right? You're helping me out this morning. Um, and today, like currently, there is a modern two-lane highway that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho um, that you can drive your, your car on. Nice, wide, you know, two lanes, you know, ditches like you would see any other on Interstate 86 over here. all right But in the ancient Near East, there was one way and one way only to get from Jerusalem to Jericho, and that was to hug the side of a mountain. Uh, we have a picture of it for you. To hug the side of a mountain. And on one side... On the right side was uh, a cliff that falls off the mountain. And on the left side is the other side of the mountain that goes straight up. This is the literal path from Jerusalem to Jericho. So, if the priest and the Levite were going to pass by the half-dead, naked, bloody man on the side of the road right it was not so much like they just kind of saw him and walked over here like that you know they're just kind of avoiding him as much as it was oh uh, and walked on there was no place else to go all right there was there was no getting over the fact that that there was just a flat out, I don't have time for this. I don't have the capacity to meet this need. I'm afraid. I don't know what to do. I have more important things to do and passing by. Now, Jesus describes the man that actually does help the guy who's beat up. Now, universally in our culture, if I say the word Samaritan, do you think good or bad? Good, right? Because we've associated it, our understanding, with the actions of the Samaritan here. However, um, if you were to grab a, a Jew in the ancient Near East off the street and say, Samaritan, good or bad? Bad. Categorically, bad. And not just like a, oh, I don't really like them, bad. But like a, no, they are eternally Cursed. They are a wicked and idolatrous people. So not just a like a, they do things we don't like, but more of like a, in the depths of their being, they are not worthy of being helped. A typical like Jewish attitude. Now why? Um, Well, I mean, this is one of those things that you, that's, it's just helpful to know, right? Um, and so since I have a really overpriced education, I'll share with you. Uh, why why, the, why the, the tension between Samaritans and Jews? In about 700 B.C., okay? 700 years before the time of Christ, there was an empire known as the Assyrian Empire, Right? The Assyrians, or Assyria, is modern-day, anyone know? Iraq. Okay? Modern-day Iraq. And the Assyrian Empire came into what was then the Promised Land and attacked the northern kingdom of Israel. It was called Israel, okay? They attacked the northern kingdom. And the capital of the northern kingdom was a city called Shechem that was located on the top of a mountain in the area known as Samaria. And what was once Israel's capital, Shechem, the northern kingdom, now became the Assyrian-led capital. All right? In Samaria. Now, what the Assyrians did is they began to, in in a sense... Colonized the northern kingdom of Israel, so they intermarried with Jewish women, and they had uh, they had children and created generations. And along with along with um, intermarrying, they also like spread their Assyrian culture throughout the land, meaning they brought in their their gods, right? Their idols. They set them up in the synagogues, right? They worshipped them. Uh, they began giving sacrifices to these idols and uh, essentially, for lack of a better term, watered down the monotheistic like foundation of Jewish culture and faith and religion for generations. A okay? hundred years later, 600 B.C., an empire known as the Babylonians Babylonians are like the Persians, modern-day Iran, um, came and invaded the southern kingdom of Judah, right, capital Jerusalem, and uh, but they were they were much nicer than the Assyrians were. And they allowed a remnant of about 40,000 Israelite uh, men and women to return back to the southern kingdom and to establish their culture, to, be, uh, to rebuild the temple, to continue to worship um, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and, um, and kind of reestablish Jewish cultural life as it was kind of meant to be and so Jews in the southern kingdom in Jesus time looked at Jews in the northern kingdom also called samaritans and said that they that they abandoned faith in Yahweh that they accepted idol gods that they're not that they're not true Jews because they're only like half Jews they're really samaritans they're dirty And so, when a Jew and a Samaritan came face to face, there was this tension between like, well, you know, my ancestors, we would never worship idols. And the Samaritans were like, well, we didn't really have a choice. And there was this. Okay? All the time. Tension, tension, tension. Not a good relationship. So, <clears throat> when it was a Samaritan man who came and helped a presumably Jewish man while the two religious leaders passed by the man who needed help. Jesus was deliberately painting a very tension. Filled picture. And what actually happens here is that you and I, we become not, the, the encouragement of the parable is for you and I not to be the Jew, right, but to be the Samaritan. Because what the Samaritan decided on that day, is that it is not the object that determines whether or not love and mercy and compassion is shown. Because if it was merely the object, the Samaritan would have looked at the Jewish man and said, he is not worthy of being loved. He has gotten what he deserves. And I will step over him just like the others have and go about my way. But it's not the object, right? It's about the subject. It's about uh, me. And it's about you. And it's about us deciding, right? That the love of God through Jesus Christ that has been shed abroad in our hearts, right, compels us as the subjects to view every object as worthy of love. No matter what the history, no matter what the culture, no matter what the background, no matter what the neighborhood that they live in, or their economic status, or the language that they speak, or the the brokenness that their family has experienced, that it's, it's not the object that determines whether or not it gets loved. It's the subject that does the loving that determines that. And as people who have been loved by God in Jesus Christ. We can make the decision, knowing what we know, to go and do likewise by loving those that the world says is unworthy. So the question for any... I think the question for any Christian... Maybe the, the broader question for anyone, for any community of faith, is this question. In the question that determines the mission of your heart or of a church is uh, who is deserving of love? Who is my neighbor? That's the question. Who is my neighbor? Who is deserving of me to stop on the road? Who, who is the object? Now, um, there's more here within the parable. If, you, if, we, if we pop down to uh, verse 33 and following... A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him. He went to him. Where was this guy? (laughs) That he had to go to him? Down part of the cliff already? I don't know. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. Now listen, the the parable says that the man, uh, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So when the Samaritan approached him, this man was likely, if not half naked, fully naked. Now I maybe this guy was uber prepared and had like wounded man on the side of the road, like emergency kit on the back of his donkey. I don't know, but I doubt it. All right. So when he bandaged the wounds of the wounded man, very likely the bandages came from his own clothing. If the man was half naked, very likely the Samaritan was ripping off his outer cloak, wrapping it around the man, right? Taking his own jug of wine and using it to to sanitize and to cleanse the the wounds that he had, pouring, pouring his own oil on it to keep it from infection and to help soothe the pain. Then if that's not enough... He picks the guy up and puts him on his own donkey, which means the Samaritan is now what? Walking. The answer to your question about how long that walk is from Jerusalem to Jericho is 17 miles on the side of a mountain that apparently was known for having thugs who beat people up and left them half for dead. So it was not a small thing that the Samaritan was doing right it was not small peanuts in fact then it says he took them he took him into town and 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 took care of him at an inn do you know that love can come at great personal cost that love is not easy-peasy. It comes at great personal cost. In fact, we could could make a pretty strong case that the definition for biblical love is sacrifice. If a man sacrificed his own ride, sacrificed his own clothing, Sacrificed his own wine. Sacrificed his own oil. Sacrificed his own money. He sacrificed. I tell you what. If you've ever loved someone that the world has said is unworthy to be loved, you might also know that it's not just your wine or your oil or your clothing or your ride that you might have to sacrifice. But a lot of times, uh, the necessity is for us to sacrifice our pride, to sacrifice our own level of personal comfort. And sometimes we must sacrifice our time. Man, I don't got time for this. I right? the Levite and the priest. I don't got time for this. I got a calendar. And i got a schedule, and if you could just see how full it was, you would know how important I am, and I need to get going. Sometimes we must sacrifice, like the Samaritan did, our resources, our possessions. But, but there is a common theme all the time. We must sacrifice something of ourselves so that in the midst of someone else's brokenness, they can experience healing. Okay, so we have three. We have the fact that there's a huge difference between knowing knowing something and doing something. That the object of love, the one who receives love, cannot limit love. Only a subject, or the one who is doing the loving, can limit it. That love comes at great personal cost. That love is a sacrifice. And finally... Here this morning. Well, let's read first. He took the man, put him on his own donkey, took him to an inn, took care of him. Verse 35. The next day, he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Um, Love sustains and commits over the long haul. That love that brings someone from brokenness, like the man was, to healing and wholeness is not a flash in the pan type of love. Right? It's not a bandage you up, send you on your way type of love. Which is legitimate. All right? It's not a. It's not a one-event type of love. It's not a one-summer-of-love type of love, right? It's a willingness and commitment over the long haul to walk with people through their brokenness in the midst of their healing, caring for them until they can be sent on their way. to engage their lives, to partner with them, to be willing to walk the long, hard road in sustaining their healing to wholeness. The Samaritan here ensured that the healing that was occurring in the Jewish man's life would not just be what he could do on the side of the road, but he took him to a place where greater healing, sustained healing, long-term healing could be experienced. He walked with him for the long haul. Friends, I um, I hope that we hear. Uh, to, I hope that we hear to us at Conduit um, the words of Jesus in the parable uh, to love over the long term. That, that love that leads to healing and wholeness takes sustained action. And that as a people We are willing to do the hard sacrificing of love that is necessary for that to happen. Love costs, right? Love, Love costs something. And that we would do so because our answer to the question of who is my neighbor? who is deserving of love is not determined by anything else other than god's first love for us and our love for others it is not determined about it's not determined by what neighborhood that they're in what language they speak what economic class they they have what what you know what job that they have what level of education what religious background, you know? Pick your poison; it doesn't matter. It wouldn't matter about the object, right? Who the object is, it would only matter about who we are—the subjects going out to love. Because, because of what we know, right? I can, I can confidently say that uh, conduit. Is without excuse for not. There, we'll we'll never get to a place. There won't be anyone who who has committed themselves even for a, three or four weeks to conduit who can say, "Well, I I just I didn't know. I I had no. I I, I guess I, I I didn't I didn't know that that you know being on mission is a, is." is central to my faith in Jesus Christ. I didn't know that there was uh, opportunity to serve. I didn't know that there was places and people uh, that we could be on mission to. Um, the not, It's here, right? The road that needs to be built is the road from here uh, to here. And by God's grace, you know, um, by God's grace as a community, it's been happening here. Right? So don't please don't receive this as an admonition towards something that hasn't already been happening, as much as an encouragement to be reminded that as we move forward, as we move to the north, right? And then later as we move to the east, to the west, and to the south, and to maybe even further north or wherever it is. That the mission of God takes the movement of conduit, right? That that we remember um, that we remember what Jesus said here. So as um, Bryce and his team come forward, I'll uh, just lead us in prayer to. Um, asking the Lord to just plant these truths in our life oh. uh, father in heaven you have uh, given us your word in such a powerful way um, and father it is you know we could certainly see ourselves in these pages in so many different ways you um, We could certainly see ourselves, Lord, as the teacher of the law who thought he knew everything, Lord, and probably did know everything, uh, but failed to understand, Lord, how that knowledge could inform the fruit of his faith. Lord, may we never be a people who who sees anyone outside of them deserving your love, deserving to be loved. Lord, may we be a people who are willing to sacrifice in the name of love. That we might walk long-term with a city who needs more than just a flash in the pan, Lord, but who needs a sustained movement of people who are responding in love to your love for them. Lord, may we be on mission, glorifying you, loving you with all that we are, loving our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus name.